Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Welcome to the Balanced Black Girl Podcast. We're putting black girl magic in motion. This show is dedicated to reinventing wellness for women of color. I'm your host, Lestrandra Alfred. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Balanced Black Girl podcast. If you are a returning listener, welcome back to the show. And if this is your first time tuning into Balanced Black Girl, thank you so much for joining us. So I don't know about you, but now that summer is in full swing, I'm definitely feeling that sense of pressure to remain busy that often happens this time of year. Based in the Pacific Northwest, and for those of you who are familiar with the weather in the Pacific Northwest, it is a really questionable 10 months out of the year, but summers are beautiful, so it creates this sense of pressure to do all of the things all of the time. And normally, I'm the girl with no plans during the summer who experiences a lot of FOMO when I see other people's adventures. But this year, I'm really blessed, really fortunate to just have a lot of fun things going on. But it's definitely creating a season of busy that I don't know if I anticipated before the summer started. So that's kind of what I'm working through right now and has been a really big theme of what I'm talking about is how to handle that season of busy or how to navigate that FOMO if maybe you're not having as busy of a season. And last week in our Patreon community, I posted a Feel Good Friday episode with some tips and tricks that I've used to navigate both sides of the coin. So ways that I'm still making time for self-care, and really taking care of myself, even though I have a jam-packed summer schedule, and also some of the things that I used to do back during the summer when my schedule was a little bit lighter, and I felt a sense of FOMO when I saw everyone else's adventures. So if you would like to tune into that episode, join our Patreon community. On Patreon, we have different tiers depending on your budget, all of which really helped support the show. That is where you can get access to our Feel Good Friday episodes. That is also where you are. Uh, Get first dibs on our events that we do for Balanced Black Girl, often our book clubs and other community events. And it's just a really, really great place to get access to exclusive content. So if that resonates with you, go to patreon.com slash balanced black girl check it out and join our community there i know i would really appreciate your support the support of folks in that community is really what helps keep the show going and 
it's a really great way to get involved and support the show. Speaking of supporting the show, it is also time for our review of the week. And every time I read the reviews, you know, I just take away some nugget, whether it is constructive, whether it is praise. And I just really, really appreciate anyone who takes the time to write a review and leave feedback about the show. So this week's review says, I'm so in love with this podcast. I could go on all day about it, but to keep it brief, here's what stands out. Every episode is so beautifully thought out. Les's guests have all been incredible, and her solo episodes are short, sweet, and oh so juicy. I have listened to every single Balanced Black Girl episode and have learned so much from each one. As a white woman, I often hear from other white women, what can I do to support women of color? This. This is what you can do to support. Take a seat. Listen, learn, and then support the women and businesses that are featured on this podcast. Love you less. Well, thank you, and I love you, reviewer and listener, for leaving such an incredible review of the show. I am so glad that you enjoy tuning in. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your allyship, and that is really great advice to your fellow friends who are wondering what they can do to support women of color. Listen, learn, let us have our space, and Yes, definitely support our businesses is probably the best thing you can do. So now I would love to transition to this week's interview, which was a really, really great conversation. Our guest this week is Michelle Hope, who is a dedicated sexologist, educator, and activist with a master's degree in human development and extensive postgraduate training in sexuality. As a veteran speaker, Michelle has over 15 years of experience delivering impactful, informative lectures and trainings across the nation. She believes as though her work in marginalized communities has provided her with deep insight and comprehension of the holistic implications of sexuality on one's life. She's dedicated her career to understanding and communicating to the masses the complex intersections of various social identities, including race, class, gender, and sexual orientation through a reproductive justice lens. She's taken deliberate actions in exploring and developing a unique language to speak to communities of color, and she feels as though her experience in working with marginalized urban communities and understanding holistic sexuality has shaped her perspective on the direct connection between sexuality and generational poverty in these communities. So Michelle and I had such a wonderful conversation really talking about sexuality, where our beliefs around sexuality come from, how we talk about and are taught about sexuality in communities of color, the relationship between shame and sexuality. We talk about consent. We talk about the importance of comprehensive sexual education infused all throughout the education system. I mean, I learned so much from this conversation with her. She is a wealth of knowledge and I just really, really appreciated her openness, um, her straightforward communication style. And I know that you're going to really get as much out of this conversation as I did. 
However, I also just want to be clear that with us talking about sex and sexuality, we do talk a little bit about consent. We talk about um, some topics that could be triggering, including sexual assault. And if those are topics that are difficult for you to talk about or to hear about or to hear conversations about, I just want to let you know up front that maybe we'll have you tune in to next week's episode if that is a topic that um, is not one that you want to engage. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the show. I am so excited to speak with you and share your expertise with our community. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So before we dive in, can you tell us a bit more about who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Um, so I, I am me, I guess. Um, (laughs) my name is Michelle. My preferred gender pronouns are she, her, or them, they, um, I'm originally from Indiana and my profession is a sexologist. Now, a lot of times people go straight to this act of sex. I do a lot less of that, although I can, I have facilitated workshops and exploratory conversations with women about, um, the act of sex and how they move, um, when it comes to having sex and men, Mm -hmm. I want to be very clear and trans folk and LGBTQ plus and all the folk. Mm -hmm. Um, but my primary interest, I guess you could say is studying human sexual behavior, uh, from the perspective that from the womb to the tomb, honey, <laughs> sexuality plays a part of your everyday life. And it's not restricted just to the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And um, my goal is to help communities of color uh, reexamine sexuality and, and what part that plays in their lives and, and help connect the dots on how that impacts their decision making and their opportunity and, and just kind of the world around them. I feel like we don't always have a clear cut um, pathway to understanding sexuality in our communities because for a very, very long time and continued, we we, we have a a lot of shame um, and hypersexualization as women of color, as people of color uh, when it comes to sexuality. Yes, and that is something that I definitely want to talk to you about, especially when it comes to the black community and and how we express ourselves when it comes to sex and sexuality. And what I think is really interesting about what you said, and I would love to dive into this a little bit further, is talking about sexuality from the womb to the tomb. So throughout the whole lifespan, because I think for a lot of people, they think that those conversations, you know, only start or only relevant when you become sexually active, but it's something that is important throughout your entire life long before that. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I facilitate workshops and I even do a workshop for parents of, of newborns and for parents that are expecting. Um, and it's like an ages and stages mm-hmm. workshop where I really help them examine and look at the sexual development processes between zero and three, zero and five, all the way through the lifespan. Like a lot of people don't realize this, but little boys can masturbate and will masturbate, um, in the womb, Wow. um, as a self-soothing, uh, mechanism. Yeah. And then when little babies come out, they, tend to do a lot of body exploration when they're, when they're very, very small children. Mm-hmm. And um, it's important for us as parents or it's important for parents to remember or caregivers to remember that 
um, touching themselves is a normal part of the, the developmental process and we should not shame or chastise that behavior. Absolutely. So what inspired you to study and work in the sexuality space? So it's, I think it's a combination of a few things. So I, I did mention I was from Indiana. I'm biracial. My mother is a white lesbian feminist. So I grew up in the work. Um, but also growing up in Indiana with a mother who is a lesbian, I was closeted. Mm. Like, because it wasn't safe yeah. for her to be her most authentic self and be out um, for fear of losing her job, losing her home, or even losing me. Yeah. And um, carrying that or holding that space um, as a survival mechanism can be traumatic. And then in addition to that, again, growing up in Indiana as a biracial person, you know, um, there's a lot of racism that comes along with that and a lot of assumptions. So being hypersexualized, um, my body being hypersexualized, I've said this many times, I'm about the same size and frame and build as I was when I was 12. Mm. I might've put on 10, 15 pounds, but, um, like to carry that type of body type in a community where you are like one of one or one of three. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, kind of given this idea that you are exotic looking and uh, I do have a, a look that leans towards a, a European beauty standard. So just kind of the hypersexualization. And then girl, I found a playboy with Latoya Jackson in it. And I was like, well, I can do this. And, and, and then there was Jenny McCarthy and there yeah. was Dr. Ruth and yeah. Dr. Drew and I was like, hold on a minute. And I don't know how it is a young person. Perhaps it's because I was mixed in mm -hmm. Indiana that race was always a part of my, my upbringing. Yeah. That I was like, hold on. How are these people going to tell me how to act when they don't know what it's like to be me because they don't look like me? Yes. And, and I think it's also very important for us to understand you cannot separate race from sexuality. It's impossible. Like I show up everywhere I am in the skin that I'm in mm -hmm. and that impacts how I'm treated and how I'm viewed sexually or what sexual rights I might have or how I might be able to um, live in my space of pleasure. Oh, yes. I'm so glad that you said that because that leads really well into my next question with the show Balanced Black Girl, you know, centered on conversations around health and wellness for black women and really talking about how interconnected race and sexuality are. I, I would love to learn from you more about that, specifically how sex and sexuality are talked about and looked at in the black community. Um, so from your work and from your research, you know, what have you found are the correlating factors there? And what are the implications of how our community views, talks about and teaches about sex? Um, well, I, I, in the years that I've been working, you know, I always knew there was something there. Yeah. Right. Um, when I studied marriage family therapy in grad school, I knew there was something there. Yeah. Right. And I was like, yeah. wait a minute, black people aren't going to therapy. And that's because they didn't have access to care. They didn't have care providers that looked like them. They didn't have the education to understand the benefits of mental health practices. So I was like, okay, I have to, I have to shift. And so I, I shifted to human development. And then that's when I really started to see how all across the, um, all across the like lifespan, yeah. uh, sexuality plays out. 
and and I think for people of color, um, what what really comes to me is generational poverty, and how generational poverty, in in my understanding and in my perspective, is rooted in sexuality, mm. from maternal mortality rates to disproportional rates of HIV and STIs, intimate partner violence rates, which can impact one's ability to get a job, uh, trauma around sexual assault or sexual violence, which can psychologically damage an individual or psychologically, let me retract the word damage, psychologically impact a person to a point where they cannot pay attention in uh, school or Mm -hmm. cannot focus at a job. Our rejection of our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters and knowing that LGBTQ youth of color are like five times or 10 times higher of having thoughts of suicidal ideation and what that does to their academic abilities and academic performance. Trauma is something that can impact even your immune system Mm -hmm. and how well that will work. So when you start to look at trauma around sexuality, whether it is a physical trauma or it could be a shaming situation. So like, oh, I was shamed because I got caught masturbating as a little kid, or I was told that was bad, that was dirty. Words like dirty and clean. And these ideas around that can really impact a a person's ability to develop in their most authentic selves. And then that will later on impact cognitive ability and ability to... Uh, retain information, remember information, and process information in a learning space. Wow. So, it, I mean, it's just there's no part of our lives that aren't impacted by right. by our beliefs and yep. experiences in this area. Yep, yep, yep. And there there was recently a, a, um, a study or an ongoing study that the CDC does called ACEs, mm-hmm. which is Adverse Childhood affects adverse childhood experiences. And it is a questionnaire that you take It's 10 questions. And the higher the points, the higher you score, um, the higher your risk factors are for things like hypertension, diabetes, addiction, right? It really correlates the experience of childhood trauma on long-term life expectancy rates. And there are studies done that show if you score five or more points on that quiz, I believe it is like you are at about an 8.2. Um, you, you're about a, like if, if a person scores a one, they might have like a 1.72 chance of experiencing sexual violence in their adulthood. Mm-hmm. If you score above a five, you're at like a eight point something. Wow. Um, so, so in other words, you have like an, a, a much greater uh, risk of experiencing sexual violence at some point in your lifetime. Wow. And when you start to think about that and, and the questions on that test or that survey are like, have you ever had someone go to jail in your family? Mm-hmm. Have you ever uh, lived in a neighborhood where gun violence is? And these are very, very, very normal experiences for people of color on a yeah. daily basis. Yeah. And when you start to think about, okay, So me being exposed to all of these things could lead me to a higher rate of experiencing sexual violence. We really have to start looking at trauma differently in our community. And we really have to start looking at trauma care and how we do that, whether it's rooted in sexuality itself or the trauma 
then impacts our ability to connect with another person in a, in a romantic space mm-hmm. or be able to connect to body image or adolescent development. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I guess my, my thought hearing that is okay. What can we do to better address these, address these traumas? Does it start with better supporting youth? How do we help, you know, adults who have experienced this? Like what, what do we do to, to better help people? It's conversations like these. Yeah. It's really just starting the conversation, Mm -hmm. having the conversation, being okay with being uncomfortable with the conversation and also recognizing that we might not see resolve in some of these issues. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that's really where it is. I think that we are seeing a push towards the um, like sex positive space. Yeah. But I think it's important for us to remember that sex positivity does not look the same for all people. No. And 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 what might work for one or what might feel very liberating for another could trigger a trauma in someone else. Mm -hmm. And, and, And really looking at intent versus impact. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think I think also if you want to talk about how do we as parents, as caregivers, um, we start before a child has words. Yeah. By talking to them and identifying their body parts, saying that's your vagina, that's your penis, not that's your cookie, not that <laughs> your wee wee. I mean, like like we have to be. We have to be really in tune with the fact that that words have meaning. Yeah. Um, I also think when uh, I think about our LGBTQ youth, yeah, I think visibility is important. I think inclusion is important. I want to encourage parents, ask your schools, what's the sex education programming here? Mm-hmm. How are you going to assist me in this process? Or if not assist me, how are you going to keep my child safe by creating inclusive environments? Studies show that by creating inclusive curriculum and integrating lessons about LGBTQ black historians um, can help raise test scores. The idea of integrating lessons across all. So like in math class, looking at rates of STIs um, and in history class, looking at LGBTQ historians, doing those kinds of things Changing the language on math problems or science problems to not be so binary, not so heteronormative can help students feel like they are a part of the curriculum. They can see themselves. Therefore, they will be interested in engaging with it more. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so important. And not not creating this otherness, right? Right. For for students who exactly exactly because I think that there is I mean especially I mean it's been a while since I've taken any sort of sex ed class that was a long time ago but from what I remember it was like the boys go in one room girls go in another room you learn about like one thing and I remember the teacher just being super uncomfortable as all get out and it kind of was an uncomfortable experience for everyone and it just wasn't a Definitely was not an inclusive experience. And again, this was like a long time ago. I think before that was, you know, something that people truly talked about or took seriously in the way they should. Um, But But I want to be clear that it cannot just be in a sex ed class. It has to be in all classes, in all spaces, in all environments. 
And I want to also um, acknowledge that we understand that some people have different religious beliefs mm-hmm. and different cultural beliefs that might frown on certain dress, behavior, uh, orientation, gender expression, gender identity. But really, it's my hope that you can think about, especially with young people, if you have children, it would be my hope that you would want to have a child who is inclusive to all people. Because as people of color, we are already oppressed. Mm -hmm. So to think about an oppressed individual or somebody who's experiencing oppression on one level that also experiences oppression on the secondary level, that's called intersectionality. Kimberly Crenshaw really... Uh, and Patricia Collins really kind of coined that and really, I believe uh, Patricia came up with it first, Kimberly Crenshaw, if you ever want to read about any of that, look up Kimberly Crenshaw, Mm -hmm. but she really kind of teased that out and brought that to life. But it is important to remember that if you are already living in an oppressed community, such as being a minority or a person of color, we have to do our part as a community to help heal the trauma And we do that by being as inclusive and as accepting and as understanding and empathetic as possible to our people and to all people, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that you touched on when you were telling us a little bit more about your background that I would also really love to dive into is around... um, you know, for black and brown bodies often being fetishized and being sexualized, even at a young age for our bodies, our features, how we look. I would love to talk a little bit more about the experience of that and how that impacts us again, kind of throughout our lifespan. You know, I think there's, there's a couple things here and this is just me personally. I can Mm -hmm. only speak to to my own personal experience, but I think as you move through life, mm-hmm. um, you go through different phases and you, de- mm-hmm. you, you grow, you mature, you have different feelings. And, um, you know, I think when I was younger, I didn't understand it. And then I think when I got into like my late teens, early twenties, I saw it as power. And then I think there became a, a time where I was almost like, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be, uh, look at. Mm-hmm. And now in this space, sometimes people want to ask me about my own sexual pro- proclivities as if, because I'm a sexologist, I'm just going to tell all my business, Yeah, which I think is definitely connected with this sex positive movement mm-hmm. and people really putting their um, sex lives out there in the world. Yeah. But again, I want to just go back to what is good for one might not always be great for the other. <laughs> totally. And um, just accepting your and acknowledging the trauma. Like here's the thing, Mm. the way we cope, the coping mechanisms for trauma, right. Are Mm -hmm. different for all people. And I think what I was just speaking to is like when I was younger, I didn't quite understand it and how I was hypersexualized. And then somewhere in my twenties, I think my coping mechanism was to embrace it and flaunt it Mm -hmm. And now in the, in the space and the age and the profession I'm in now, I honor it. And that doesn't mean I need to flaunt it. It doesn't mean I need to booty clap on Instagram. It doesn't, I'm just in a different phase. Yeah. And that is no discredit to anybody else who works in a sex positive space, who's willing to disclose or willing to um, show more of themselves. I just am in in a different space of, of my understanding of the trauma I've experienced, 
having being a brown person or a, a, a person of color and experiencing the hypersexualization of just being me and living yeah. in this skin and living in this body. And then adding to that, my profession, it, it can become very tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and interestingly enough, I do, I do want to say this. Sometimes it's not always about like, Oh girl, you're so sexy. Sometimes from my own community, I get, well, it can't be that bad. You're thin, you're light skinned, you have good hair. So like we traumatize each other a lot. Yeah. That's real. Definitely real. And I think too, to that point can kind of downplay other people's experiences and how you said it's, it's different for everyone. Those experiences are different for everybody. What sex positivity means is different for everybody. So also if we say someone else's experience is maybe not that bad or downplay it, we're also not really creating space to listen and honor where they're coming from. Exactly. So then you're marginalizing the trauma, which as we continue to talk about, the sex positive community, I have to bring up the Me Too movement. Yes. And how, first of all, there, I appreciate that that went viral. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some issues on, on how it went viral. Mm-hmm. Because it was originally coined for uh, black girls in the Bronx. And then it became a very, not to say all of us don't experience it, but it was like, we had been knowing about this type of behavior for a long, long time, yes. but it wasn't until a white woman decided to say it, that it became valid. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a problem. Yes. Um, and I believe people have talked about that problem quite a bit and how white feminism can be very othering. Mm-hmm. But I want us to think deeply and dig deeper um, for, for all those people who support the movement, who are a part of the movement, who work in the movement. How might we be othering cisgendered heteronormative men of color who experienced sexual assault and it was normalized in our community as young boys. Mm. But I see that a lot. Yeah. And it's such a good question. And it's something that it's something that I don't think that there has been enough space to have open conversations about and truly acknowledge and allow healing in that space as well. Absolutely not. And I know that because I am someone that's passionate about this work and I talk about it everywhere. Yeah. In schools, at work, um, at restaurants, in bars, at happy hour. Yeah. And what I have seen happen is it's just, it's, it's the most interesting thing. A man will approach me, hit on me, um, then ask me what I do and then want to get into the act of sex questions and then maybe after a couple more drinks, when they feel safe or their or their inhibitions are a little bit lower, mm-hmm. they then want to disclose that they were sexually assaulted. Mm. And and I don't mind holding that emotional space for them. However, it breaks my heart to know that you just disclosed to a stranger at a bar yeah. your experience with the, your traumatic experience with assault. Yeah. So we as a community need to do a better job of creating space for um, men of color, whether cisgendered, trans, gender nonconforming, gay or lesbian or whatever. We need to create more spaces for us to have open dialogues that promote healing. Yes. And then to that point, 
we also need to forgive ourselves. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think we embody the shame and then we take the shame on and then we shame ourselves. Yeah. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm a big advocate for having hobbies and learning a new language is an incredible hobby to take up. I've been practicing my French with Babbel and it's been such an effective, engaging way to learn. I took French in high school and college, but I got a little rusty and I wanted to brush up before visiting France earlier this year and I've been hooked on Babbel ever since because it's helped so much and you too can make amazing progress with your language learning through Babbel and that's because Babbel actually works. So instead of paying hundreds of dollars for private classes or playing on apps that are basically glorified games, you can take Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons that are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language as soon as three weeks from now. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and their methods for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, so you're learning things you would actually say, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. It's no wonder why Babbel has sold over 10 million subscriptions because it's real learning for real conversations. And they're offering a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. So you can get 55% off your Babbel subscription only for our listeners at babbel.com slash balanced. Get up to 55% off at babbel.com slash balanced, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash balanced. Rules and restrictions may apply. Mm. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I would love to talk about shame and sexuality more. And I know we've touched on it a bit, but the two really go hand in hand for a lot of people. And so I would love to talk a bit more about where shame around sex comes from, um, how we can help the next generation, maybe not feel some of that sense of shame around sex and how we as adults, if we experience those feelings of shame around sex can work through that and, and heal ourselves from it. Well, I think initially, if you are a parent, if you are a care provider, if you are auntie, an uncle, I don't care what you are, right? <laughs> to a younger person, yeah. establishing medically accurate terms yes. for body parts, mm-hmm. uh, establishing that you are a trusted, knowledgeable adult that will show up for that individual, whether old or young, in a non-judgmental way. I honestly think that the shame starts um, with chastising young children for body exploration and or self-pleasure. When children are young and they're pleasuring themselves, it's not because they're trying to have an orgasm. It's because they're like, oh man, touching this space feels good. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily understand why it feels good, but it feels good. Yeah. Um, So really, and establishing boundaries, um, like I under, and, and saying, I understand that feels good, but nobody else should be doing that to you. And if somebody else does, I need to know. Yeah. Additionally, that's not something we do in public. That's something you do at home, in your bedroom, by yourself, mm-hmm. or in the bathroom, or in private spaces. Yeah. Um, I don't think we do enough of that. Yeah. Um, I also feel like a lot of times in my experience, 
um, and I am starting to see a shift. We assume that like we started this conversation, um, sexuality and our understanding of sexuality does not begin until we are sexually active or hit puberty. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. If you are a parent to a young child, your interaction with your partners, the people you're dating, the television shows you're exposed, exposing your children to, even if you're like, they don't know what's going on in the show. It doesn't matter if they don't know they're still picking up ideas. Yeah. And we have to be able to provide context for them using television shows to say, Oh, what did you think about that relationship is a great way to start a conversation mm-hmm. and they should start soon. They should happen often and consistently because it becomes a lot easier if you start younger and, and have conversations frequently um, for a young person or for any person to come to you if something comes up. That is how you normalize. And once we can start really normalizing these conversations, we will be able to provide spaces where people need to ask for help. Yeah. So important. And for adults, maybe if someone is an adult who is struggling with feelings of shame, really impacting their sexuality or impacting their sex life or just really their ability to explore, I mean, what what should they do? Don't be afraid to get help. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to look into counseling. Yeah. Don't be afraid to. And here's the other thing that we don't do. Talk to your primary care physician. Mm, yeah. You don't, you know, like start there. Yeah. Uh, And sometimes that can be uncomfortable because a lot of times primary care physicians are not well-versed. They've not been trained, but it doesn't matter. That is your primary care physician. That is their job. If they are not equipped to handle the questions you might have, they should be able to refer you someplace that can. Mm -hmm. But we have to speak up. We have to ask for the help. Totally. Totally. And a conversation that I have been having just with other women kind of in my life, in my circles, is talking about where and how we learn about sex and what that looks like kind of throughout the the lifespan as we've talked about. And we haven't of the conversations we've had, we're all just kind of like, where do we learn? Where do we learn about that? Do we just learn by doing? Do we just learn by seeing? Do we just learn by asking questions? And are some of these things helpful, not helpful? What is that experience like? And as we navigate those conversations, it's really gotten me thinking more about like, what are the healthy ways and healthy spaces to learn about sex and sexuality and and what does that look like? Um, So I would love to hear maybe your take on that or your thoughts on that topic as well. Well, the thing about sexuality is it's as individual as the person who experiences it, Mm -hmm. right? And acknowledging that and acknowledging that And I know I've said this like four times already. (laughs) What is good for one is not always great for the other. And sometimes can be damaging to another. So really trying to just leave space for the people, the individuals, the young people, the old, the, the, your peers, leaving space for them to just be. And if they want to talk to you, just listening. And I think it's important to say listening to learn 
or listening for understanding versus listening to have a response. Those yep. are two different things. Absolutely. Um, and then just, you know, being mindful. I mean, I think as adults, we can kind of pick up on people's body language. So if in a conversation, someone says something to you and then you have a retort and you notice their body language shifts, maybe checking in and acknowledging if something you said may have been hurtful to another person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In my experience in talking to a lot of other people, other women, especially in terms of sex and especially in some heteronormative spaces, a lot of conversations, I think in a lot of conversations, women were not feeling as comfortable putting their pleasure, their wants, their what they want to see and what they don't want to see front and center of those conversations. And with sex positivity becoming more and more common, more and more prevalent in terms of conversations we're having, are we seeing shifts in how women are talking about sex and how women are talking about seeking pleasure and not necessarily just in the sense of it being about the partner and what is the shifts in those conversations looking like? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I most definitely think that that is a thing. I think that we are being more vocal about our wants and needs. And I think that's tied to visibility. I think that once like one person is like, oh no, we're not going to do this. If I'm not pleased, then it's not going down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're definitely seeing that. And I think that Things like the Me Too movement and Time's Up are really connected to pleasure. Consent and pleasure are intertwined. Mm. One of the things in a lot of the coursework that I I do with um, adults and with um, young people is like, if it don't feel good, you ain't got to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you have the choice to rescind consent at any moment. Um at any time, unless you live in North Carolina, because legally that, that's a, that's a weird law, but, um, uh, you have the right to, cons- to, to, you know, rescind consent and you should do that. But before you get into that space, have a conversation with your partner about sex. That's what I'd really like to see people do more of. Yeah. Don't make assumptions that, oh, well, if he ain't doing this, I'm out. Well, how about you have a conversation about what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do and what they're willing to do and what you're what you're into prior to even hopping in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. That's that's something that I I have always, you know, in 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 a deeper understanding at this point in my life now start to question, like, why would I get in bed with somebody before I even ask what they like to do? Mm-hmm. Knowing I am a, uh, not a survivor, but a rape thriver. Mm-hmm. I know I've experienced sexual assault. Yeah. So, you know, now I disclose that before we get anywhere near a bedroom mm-hmm. because I do have PTSD and I need to let my partner know there are just some things that you, that could end up happening during the course of sex play sexual activity that could trigger something in me so we should probably kind of have a detailed conversation about what what is not great for me in the bedroom and i don't think people i don't think we've gotten to a point where people are doing that prior to yeah sex and i i want to encourage and implore people to just be honest with themselves be honest with their sex partners 
and and it's it's and the thing is you want a one night stand up for that too but you should still be able to be honest about your experience and say what you like and what you don't like prior to hopping in the bedroom that would be my hope for people yeah it doesn't always happen but that would be my hope definitely definitely and that just makes so much sense i mean i think too if if we're going to be willing to to be with people or to have sex with people or to be in those spaces, we should also be in situations where we feel comfortable talking about those things. And if you don't feel like you can speak up or feel comfortable talking about it, then it might be a good time to reconsider whether or not you should be doing it in that space yep. or with that person. Yep. yep. And really checking into self. I yeah. only, I also encourage when like I'm working, um, coaching with, with single people or mm-hmm. couples around, um, sex, the idea of really getting honest with yourself and tuning in to what you want and what your needs are before you even put yourself out there. Or even if you're like in a long-term relationship, you're married, you're a coupled, you're in a situationship, take a little bit of moment or a little bit of time and sit down and write about what you like, what you don't like, what you're willing to do, what you won't do, what you've never thought about doing and what you've thought about doing, but have been afraid to ask your partners. Like these are things and, and internal check-ins that we should be doing with ourselves regularly. Yeah. And I think that through, I mean, that's a really good practice and like I need to do that and try that. But I also, I feel like that that's a really empowering exercise to go through as well when you are able to, really articulate what you want and and what your needs are and to know that for yourself I think yeah is a really empowering and I I think beyond just wanting Mm -hmm. um and this is something people really don't talk about evaluate how important the act of sex or specific sex acts are to you yeah in context of a relationship so if you're with somebody who doesn't eat pussy is that the end of is that a deal breaker Right. Yeah. What if you're into somebody or you are in a relationship with somebody who, you know, sex is not a high priority for them. Mm -hmm. Another thing I feel like I found in my work is that in our community, we tend to blur the lines between intimate physical intimacy and sex acts. Oh, right. Yeah. Let's talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can, so I have had the pleasure, um, of working with incarcerated, uh, individuals uh-huh. and my experience with incarcerated individuals, especially men, is there is sometimes, um, a heightened level of homophobia mm-hmm. and that I have observed is in conjunction with their experience being incarcerated. And I have feelings that make me, or or I have thoughts that make me wonder if it has to do with, especially if somebody has been incarcerated for a long time, them trying to process their experience of intimacy, uh, with another man. Yeah. Um, although they do not identify as, um, homosexual or gay, or even a man who has sex with men, but let's say they're incarcerated for a long time and they miss the birth of their child or they miss their a child's 16th birthday or graduation in that moment, they may may need to have physical intimacy to soothe them. Mm. They might need to cry and be held. 
And I think somewhere in there, there is this confusion of, oh my God, that felt good to cry on that man's shoulder. That felt good to be held while I wept. Does that make me gay? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is is a space we should maybe think about a little deeper. Yeah. Or even, you know, adolescence, ex- uh, sexual exploration. Oh my gosh, somebody, I was in the locker room and I saw another penis and my body just reacted. Am I gay? Um, I think there's a lot of that like, oh, this happened and then this happened. Am I gay? Or, and I think society puts that on people. I've also seen situations where, like, a, um, there was once a, I heard a, I, I heard a story of a group of young men who, like, did some sort of initiation to another young man, and it consisted of um, trying to depance the person and, like, uh, smack them on their bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that person became physically aroused from that, and then they shamed him that individual and Mm. told them that he was a faggot, that he was gay. Mm. But what we have to remember is the body's response to stimulation is not connected to sexual orientation. It's just the body's response. If you've not been touched, if something touches you in a, in a space that could, uh, could, even if it's unwanted and it could be, and it could arouse you, then all of a sudden you start to get in your head like, oh, maybe I like that. And I think that's the same for assault. Yeah. Now you're thinking like, oh my gosh, is this just the kind of intercourse I like? I know I didn't want it, but my body became aroused. So this must mean that I like it. No, that's just your body's natural response system. Yeah. And I don't think we really, uh, we really talk about that either. Or even just think about it. Yeah. I don't know if that's something you talk about, Mm -hmm. but even just internally. Yeah. And from an education standpoint, I mean, uh, sharing and educating on the importance of the difference between your body's physiological response and, you know, either what you would want more of, what you don't, how you feel, you know, that those are two different things, I think is a really... It's really good to understand. And that's why I I said a while back, like, if you do have a child, if Mm -hmm. you do have, if you know someone in the school system, if you're a teacher, if you're a principal, if you work in admin, start asking questions. What's the sex education? And it can't just be sex ed as far as risk reduction, pregnancy prevention. It has to be a part of a holistic perspective of sexuality, meaning identity, meaning sensuality, meaning sexualization, meaning media, society, culture, religion. Like we have to explore all of those things because all of those things are what make us unique, uniquely us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. And really that holistic, that holistic view, because it, it was like, as we were talking about at the beginning, it really does impact every area of our lives. Yes, it does. And every day of our lives. Yeah. So it's interesting how we process this. And, and again, I think that, um, I mean, there's just, there's so many things that come up for me when I think about the sex positive movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's so many different voices, which is amazing and wonderful and awesome. But also, what is right for one is not always right for the other. Yeah. And because somebody 
might have a lot of followers, uh, might have a good product, Mm -hmm. uh, might, I don't know, be humorous or does not mean that they are an expert. It does not mean that they've, they understand trauma. Mm -hmm. It does not mean they have actually done work with real people other than posting things online. And that is important to remember. Yes. I, I do respect that everybody has to do their part of the work, but we as consumers have to do a better job of, like Whitney said, honey, show me them receipts. <laughs> yes. Show me the receipts. Yes. Because it, it, in my observation of things, especially as women of color, uh, we tend to hypersexualize ourselves mm-hmm. for clicks and likes. Ooh, yep. I'm spilling yeah. tea today. I, hey, the tea I, is hot. <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> like I, 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 and and I keep thinking to myself when I'm like scrolling through social media feeds, like maybe I am indi- in, inundated with these experiences because I I follow so many of these people and mm-hmm. I I engage in spaces that this information comes up. Yeah, but that is what is scary to me. Yeah. Because I can decipher real from fake because I've been doing this so long. Yeah. An average consumer would not be able to. Mm -hmm. And then they might buy some, uh, this one was saying, they might buy some flat tummy tea (laughs) to get snapback pussy to try to save a marriage Mm -hmm. or a relationship. And that is not how it works. Mm -mm. No. You know? Yep. I mean, and it's not just about the sex positive movement. I mean, look at our current administration. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly not somebody who is equipped to do the job. No. Or make decisions or give us advice that would then implicate our decisions. Yet that is the world we live in. And I think we have to really start, start like pushing back on that. Yeah. We have to do better. We have to demand better. We have to say, no, 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 no. What, what do you really know about this? Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Like, did you just take some online classes? Like, <laughs> and I, and I, and I, I have been struggling with this for some time now. Yeah. Because the market is becoming incredibly saturated. Mm-hmm. Like incredibly saturated. Yeah. Um, and it concerns me. Yeah. And I mean, it, for me, as someone who is more of on the consumer side of, you know, not being as well versed, sometimes I see things and I question, I'm like, is this for authenticity and education or is it for shock value? Cr- and and what yeah. ha, what is the difference between the two? And do young people know the difference between the two? And how is that guiding the decisions that people make? Yeah, that's my concern too, my friend. You're yeah. making some good points over here. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a lot of that is a, a lot of that. And then the other thing is, and I don't, a lot of people won't necessarily know this, but one thing I've observed is like, why do women of color who want to work in a sex positive space, why are we expected to share our personal sexual proclivities yeah. to get attention? Mm-hmm. Dr. Ruth ain't out here telling you how she likes to suck and fuck. Mm-mm. So why is that the standard for people of color? 
and I tell you what I believe it is, it's a voyeuristic thing. Mm. Yes. I could definitely see that and definitely, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I see that even in the work, like yeah. even in somebody who's gone to school, who might be a social worker, who might work in a, a clinical space or an education space. Like I have seen it when it's almost like they're helping communities of color and it becomes almost like savior porn. Yep. Like, oh man, that was, that sounds horrible. Can you tell me more? Mm -hmm. How did that feel when that, that happened to you? And how do you cope with that? And like, almost as like they, they can watch it, but they, because they don't have to live it. Yep. Totally. Save your porn. I've also seen the term, I think it's like trauma porn where yep. people yep. get like addicted to, to watching trauma and traumatic events and experiences from the outside. Yep. Because that's their privilege. They don't yeah. have to actually live in it. They want to just look at it. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. So real. So real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Michelle, I just have a couple more questions for you. A little bit more personal. Not personal in the way that we were just talking about, but more personal on the self-care side. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so, for you as an educator, I mean, you pour so much into other people. So, mm -hmm. what do you do to take care of you? How do you also make sure that you are taking time to make yourself feel whole as well? Well, I think that it would not be right for me to be inauthentic on this. I don't always do a great job. Yeah. Like, I just, yeah. just want to be real. That's okay. Sometimes I'm horrible at it. Um, sometimes it looks like really unhealthy behaviors. Sometimes it looks like more healthy behaviors. But I think at the end of the day, acknowledging that I don't always get the self-care space correct yeah. is self-care in itself. Totally. Because I'm allowing myself to forgive myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like on days when I might have experienced, like even today, um, I was at a trauma-informed uh, workshop, right? And how to really be um, trauma-informed when providing reproductive health care. Um, and I think that just acknowledging that, like being physical, working out, masturbation is great. Um, you know, just finding things that make me feel good, lighting candles, burning incense, taking bubble baths, just anything that makes me feel good, that's not going to give me a hangover is usually the best way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes wine is good though. To be very <laughs> honest, sometimes vodka is needed. Hey, sometimes you need that. This show is but about I, balance. No judgment. It is. Exactly. It's, but I think it's just like my, my, my biggest advice in that space is just acknowledging that you are feeling something. Yeah. And not just the, not just the down feelings, but when you're feeling empowered mm -hmm. and, 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 and memorizing that feeling and thinking about what did I do to get to this feeling? Yeah. And then kind of staying in tune with that. Absolutely. And I, I'm really glad that you said that because I think it can be very easy to when you're in a, a better space like that to be waiting for the other shoe to drop instead of being really present in that moment and enjoying it. Exactly. And, and, and just even the small victories, because again, trauma looks so different for different people, whether you are somebody who's holding space for other people, 
or you are somebody who has experienced trauma and you're trying to get through it, you know, one person might experience trauma in the way that it's like, I got out of bed this morning. Fabulous. You're winning. Mm -hmm. Another person might be like, girl, I worked at triple and I got these kids, but I got all my work done. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I got almost everything done. The dishes didn't get done. Okay. The dishes are going to be there. And I think that's goes back to the idea that I'm not going to be able to find resolve to all things in the time frame I want to. Yeah. And being at peace with that. Yeah. There might not be a resolve. Right? Yeah. There might be systemic issues or um other issues that you don't have any control of that are impacting your ability to make resolve. Mhm. Yeah, and not putting that that pressure on yourself to to always have resolve all the time. Exactly. And then I think the biggest thing, don't be afraid to ask for help. Yes. Don't be afraid to let somebody know you're struggling. Mm-hmm. Because you can't carry it by yourself. No. That's impossible. Yes. Ugh. Asking for help is the most, I think, underrated form of self-care. That's, yep. It's hard, but it is necessary. Yep. Yeah. And therapy is great. Yes. And, and if you, if you're a space that has a clinic, look and see if they have, and you can't afford it, mm-hmm. look to see if you can find free, free therapy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, those are, those are spaces where you can just have a community or, mm-hmm. or even like if you're having some type of, um, struggles with sex or love, there is something called, um, like an AA group, like sex, love addicts anonymous. Oh, great. Um, and that's a space, especially if you're you're in a in a space of sexuality, yeah. that you you might be able to find community. I will say this: a lot of times, AA programs or NA programs or SLA SLAA programs often can be a little churchy, mm-hmm. which can also be triggering. Yeah. So I mean, yep. try it. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, take the principles that you can. Uh, from that experience and utilize those, but don't feel obligated to continue. Totally. Right? Yep. Really, you, it, it's c- kind of trial and error in finding out what works for you. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like we were talking about earlier when it comes to pleasure and consent. Like, if it doesn't feel good or doesn't feel like it's healing, sometimes self care and and growth don't always necessarily feel good. But if it doesn't feel like it's serving or healing, you know, could be a good time to reevaluate why you're doing it. Yep. Take a step back. But Mm -hmm. I think you said something very important there. Growth is not comfortable. Nope. And being okay with the discomfort Mm -hmm. is important. Yeah. Being okay with being sad is important. Yeah. But understanding that you will, this too shall pass. Exactly. This too shall pass. Yes. So. Ugh. Michelle, thank you so much. I know I got so much value out of this conversation. And I just I appreciate everything that you shared with us, all of your honesty, amazing information. Where can our audience find you to keep in touch and to continue following your work? Well, you can follow me on social media, which is at MHSexpert on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, my website is www.mhsexpert.com. Um, and I'm, you know, keep an eye out for me. I got some things in the work. I'm trying to get more information out to more communities. And, you know, if you're 
somebody that's in need, go to the website. You can find my email. It's also, I believe, on my Instagram page and hit me up. Perfect. And we will make sure we have all of that information linked in the show notes as well so that people can find you, people can find your resources and reach out. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome. Yeah.